So here in Acts 20, we've got this, this record of, of Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. And this, as far as I can see, is the, the only um, recorded sort of live speech that Paul gives to his brethren and sisters. Uh, we have his letters, but this is the only sort of verbatim live speech that we have. And I think here we see Paul close up and, uh, and really personal. And um, the whole theme of what he's saying to, to these, these, these brethren is to follow him as a, a person. Not in the sense that he was kind of trying to preach himself, but he was trying to persuade people... Uh, to, to follow the Lord Jesus and proffering himself, offering himself uh, uh, as an example of that. So uh, let's uh, take there verse, verse 18. You know from the first day I came into Asia after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. And he can actually say, verse 19, that he served the Lord with all humility of mind. Now this is a strange thing to say, to say, you know, I have served God with, with a humble mind. Um, <clears throat> because as soon as you think you're humble, then, then kind of you aren't. And so it's something I've noticed all through Paul's writings, and I see it particularly in this, this whole passage here, this, this address to the Ephesian elders. He's uh, very confident of himself. He's very confident that he can, he can say to people things like, follow me, as he says to the Corinthians, even as I also follow Christ. Um, <clears throat> he's very confident, and yet he has this humility. How are we to understand that? Well, it is difficult, isn't it? Because we are not to preach ourselves, and we are to always be underpinned in all that we are, and in all that we do, and in all that we say, uh, by a realization of our own sinfulness and our own weakness. And yet that does not mean that we lose all confidence. Our confidence is in the Lord. Now, of course, Paul had sinned awfully. He persecuted the church. And yet he, he must have really believed in that forgiveness that he'd been given and the, the righteousness imputed to him by grace that he can really feel very positively about himself. Now, really, if having done all the stuff that Paul did um, I, for him to sort of be able to, to, to write like this, when he's, you know, persecuted, killed, uh, tortured, probably handicapped uh, the brethren in Christ because of their association with Jesus and hating Jesus, if after all that he can feel this confident uh, to write in this way, uh, pushing himself forward in one sense uh, as an example, and uh, talking so confidently, like in verse 24, I'm determined to finish my race with joy. Um, he, he's got this great sense of, of purpose and of, and of confidence, and he can say, 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Um, you know I've warned you with, with tears, 35, I've showed you all things, how that's so laboring, you ought to support the weak, etc., this uh, confidence that we are on the right track is maybe related to an awareness that we have sinned. I only say that because looking at Paul's example, the one who had sinned so much, as he says in First uh, Timothy chapter 1, he says that he has been set up as the example of, 
are of the chief of sinners who comes to Christ uh, as an example, an example to all those who afterwards should believe. So he's like our, our pattern. And so this person who had sinned so much, who had felt so much of God's grace and forgiveness, uh, does not become a sort of a, a quavering wreck afterwards, you know, wallowing in his own failure. This person actually has got a very clear sense of mission and direction and confidence in their life. And don't forget, this is someone who was very heavily criticized, to put it mildly, by his brethren, his Jewish brethren, and also by by his own converts, it seems, from how he has to defend himself in, in his letters. And in the end, all those in Asia turned away from him. So that, that's my, my impression, uh, just reading through this whole thing from uh, verse 18 uh, down to 36. But looking at the text in a little bit more detail, <clears throat> verse 18, he says, You know from the first day when I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. Now, in chapter 16, verse 6, we are told specifically that the Spirit forbade Paul to, to preach in Asia. He was forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, it, there's no record that I can see in Acts where there's another message from the Holy Spirit that says, Hey Paul, it's all okay now, you can go to Asia now. I would say that Paul was told not to preach the word in Asia for whatever reason, and he, all the same, did it. And God blessed it in one sense. Although you will also remember that all those in Asia he lamented and to Timothy turned away from him. And yet, when you come after Paul's death to the time of the, the epistles, that uh, the Lord, well, that the letters that the Lord Jesus gave to the the ecclesias in Asia, in the Lycus Valley, those seven ecclesias, it's quite apparent that amongst them there were quite a number who were holding to the faith, particularly Ephesus. Uh, we're reading here the address of the Ephesian elders. Uh, I mean, he criticizes them for having lost their first agape, their first love, but he says, you know, well done, you've. Uh, You've kicked out the uh, false teachers, uh, uh, etc., but uh, you've lost love in, uh, in, in what you're doing, and so repent and do the first works. Uh, but all the same, the implication is that there were valid believers in Asia, seven ecclesias, in fact. Um, and amongst them, there were some in Sardis, for example, who had not defiled their garments, uh, and who Jesus can promise you, you'll walk with me in white. But all those people... Paul says, had turned away from him. So they turned away from Paul personally, but they abided with the Lord. Maybe their minds were poisoned or whatever, and they naively believed what they were told. It's not clear. Whatever. As far as Paul personally was concerned, his work in Asia didn't really work out that well in the long term. So he'd been told by the Holy Spirit not to preach in Asia, but he still goes there. And I think that that is a theme that you see, in fact, in these verses that we're reading here, where he says, verse 22, I'm going bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing what things shall befall me there, but the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions 
uh, are waiting for me. But none of these things worry me. I'm determined to go ahead and do this. And so, did he have to die? Did he have to go up there and, and get sent off to Rome and, and basically be given a death sentence in the very end? Uh, did he have to do that? Did he have to go to Jerusalem? Did he have to do any of these things? And the Holy Spirit was, was warning him, really, not to. And um, you know that there were some prophets that uh, appeared to, to Paul and said, by the Holy Spirit, warned him uh, not to go. I mean, 21 verse uh, 10, uh, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. When he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. And so, you could say that it was difficult to interpret what the Holy Spirit was saying. You could actually argue that the Holy Spirit was, as the disciples there in 21 verse 12 uh, understood it, the Holy Spirit was telling Paul, don't go up to Jerusalem. But he did want to go up to Jerusalem because... Again, I think he, he was genuinely motivated. He did it not out of rebellion, but because he thought that this would best further the, the plan that, that God had for the spreading of the gospel, for the unifying of Jew and Gentile, etc. So then, what am I saying? I'm not saying that if God says don't do something, well, I can say, yeah, well, my motives are good, so I can do it. I, I'm not talking about in a moral sense. I'm not talking about morality. I'm not talking about, if you like, obedience and disobedience. What I'm saying is that I think that God's way of dealing with us is very open-ended. And that's why I think there are many possible futures that God has made possible. I feel very strongly that the prophecy of the temple at the end of Ezekiel was well it says this and actually in Ezekiel 43 that this this was the command to the Jews in exile in Babylon that they could have returned and built that temple these were the blueprints this was the plan but they for whatever reason didn't really build it as God intended uh, they as Haggai laments they couldn't even be bothered to uh, put the ceiling up on God's house because they were too busy putting up the ceiling on their on their own house so it didn't work out and uh, there's all sorts of possible futures that God, in potential, has arranged. I mean, for example, the Jews could have repented of the preaching of John the Baptist, as God hoped they would, I guess, and could have accepted Jesus and not crucified him. Now, all this was possible. And all these possible futures are there. And that, as I say, makes things somewhat open-ended. Now, when it comes not to moral issues, but to the way we, we do our service of God and the, the decisions we make in our lives, very often there, there is not a right or wrong. And maybe when we're first baptized, we agonize about, should I do this, should I do that? Once we mature, I think we come to see that actually it doesn't matter which way you jump. What matters is your motives. And very often in those choices... It comes down to a choice between a higher level or a lower level of service. For example, Paul did not have to go up to Jerusalem. He did not have to preach in Asia. 
but he he talks in one of his other letters about how he intended to fully preach the gospel in a, an arc, really, beginning in uh, Jerusalem and going through uh, Asia, through Europe, uh, ending up in Spain at the end of the arc, and then I assume he intended to come back through North Africa. Now, he didn't get to North Africa, as far as we know. Um, we don't even know if he got to Spain, but that was certainly his intention. And because he'd set himself, I think, that that aim of taking the gospel worldwide, or certainly throughout the Roman world, it was necessary for him to to go into Asia. The Spirit told him don't go, but he, he still went. Anyway, that's just, uh, just for you to uh, reflect upon. So then, he says, to verse 20, I have kept back nothing that was profitable to you. And that's the same Greek word that's translated in verse 27, I have not shunned, I have not kept anything back to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So he kept nothing back. He shared everything that, in in a sense, everything that he had with them, and I I mean spiritually. And he says that he had done this uh, publicly and from house to house, and I understand that from that that the Ecclesia at Ephesus had public meetings and also a series of house meetings. And I think, incidentally, that that's what was going on in Corinth. Um, you, you can work that out, really, from the, the letter to the uh, Corinthians. So, um, <clears throat> he kept on testifying, he says, verse 21, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the, the burden of his message was that we must change. That, we, that sin is a felt offence against God. And we can put that right by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What appears to be two aspects here are, are really two very related things. And I wonder if there is a connection with what we, we have in Acts 8 verse 12. The things about the kingdom and the things about Jesus. And I have suggested elsewhere that they are not, in fact, two separate groups of things. They, those two phrases, I suggest, are to be seen in parallel with each other. That, in fact, the things about the kingdom or the rulership or the reign of God are the things of Jesus. <clears throat> That's why when Jesus preaches the, the gospel of the kingdom, he doesn't actually max out on the idea that hey, I'm going to come back and establish a a future political kingdom here with Jerusalem as the capital. Now that is taught in the Bible. But that literality of the kingdom was not the essence. The essence of the parables of the kingdom, the, the gospel that he preached about the kingdom, was all about relationships in this life, how we are to live now, in view of the future that that we are awaiting, and in the light of of his death for us and the love of God for us. And so the things about the kingdom of God are not simply that Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom here on the earth. The parables that all teach about the kingdom of God is like this or like that, they are the gospel of the kingdom. So the the gospel, the good news, is not just that Jesus is coming back to give us eternal life. The good news of the kingdom is the good news of life now under the kingship or rulership of God. And I think uh, that line of thought is confirmed in verse 25 where Paul says, I have preached to you the kingdom of God. 
But he says in verse 21 that what he'd been telling them about was repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus. And he, he says that that is preaching the kingdom. So then, <clears throat> verse 22, he says, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. But 23, the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Now, it's interesting that he says, I go bound in the Spirit. Uh, you could say that, the Holy, that that is the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit sort of told him he had to go to Jerusalem. Or you could understand it as sort of an opposition between his Spirit and the Holy Spirit. He recognizes the Holy Spirit in every city was telling him through various prophets, etc., and visions, perhaps, that you're going to be bound and afflicted in Jerusalem. But he feels bound already in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now, we, we read elsewhere that he purposed in his Spirit. And I, I wonder, I think I incline myself to the view that in verse 22, bound in the Spirit uh, refers to his own spirit. That he was told by the Holy Spirit, you're going to be bound up there. Okay. I bind myself now in my own spirit. And I think you see there his determination of mind. It's like the Lord Jesus steadfastly setting his face, binding himself in his spirit, if you like, to go to Jerusalem. And that final journey up to Jerusalem was, I think, Paul's inspiration really going up to Jerusalem. So he says, verse 26, I am pure from the blood of all men. And he's alluding there, of course, to what Ezekiel says, that if you are the watchman and you have the message, if you don't tell people that message, their blood is upon you. If you do tell them, their blood is not upon you. Now, that means that Paul had obviously read, heard, understood Ezekiel and Ezekiel's message, and he felt this as applicable to himself. So that now he can say to, the, to these, uh, this ecclesia, you know, I am pure from the blood of all men, I've told you. Now, when we read those words in Ezekiel where he says, you, you know those words where he says that if, uh, if, if the watchman knows the, the evil is coming upon the city and you, he, you don't say anything, then their blood is upon you. Um, but if you do tell them, well then their blood is upon their own head and you are free. And he's clearly alluding to that here. So he'd read that, just as you and I have read that. And he felt that personally relevant to himself. And we should feel that. That we have a huge responsibility for other people. Because without being arrogant about it, we do know a lot that they do not know. And their blood is upon our heads. I mean, if we do not breathe a word to the fellow next to us about what is happening to this earth, what is going to happen to every single person personally, that they will die and stay dead forever, but they can live forever through the Lord Jesus. I mean, if we're not going to breathe a word of that to anyone, I mean, is this not putting ourselves in the position of exactly what Ezekiel is saying, that their blood is upon our heads? Now, I don't know quite what that means, that their blood will be upon our heads. I assume it means that at the Day of Judgment this matter will be gone into. And we will see the future which all those people could, well, could have had, which they missed, because we didn't say anything to them about it. 
And it's a point to reflect on that maybe we can discuss uh, later when Ezekiel says if you, if you don't tell them the message, then their blood will be upon your head. Uh, does that necessarily mean that you will not be saved? That you will therefore be destroyed? I, I'd always assumed it meant that. But then thinking about it, I started to think, well, yeah, there are people whom I have not told the gospel to. And some of them are dead now. And their blood is therefore upon my head. And then I, trying to comfort myself, I suppose, I thought, yeah, that's kind of true of everybody. Uh, that we have all must have people we, we should have witnessed to, but we didn't. Um, so what does it mean? That their blood shall be upon my head and, and your head. What does that mean? Does it mean we shall not be in the kingdom? Because that means, uh, I fear, without making excuses for myself, uh, I think that means that we're all not going to be there. So I thought that maybe it means that their blood shall be upon our head in the sense that at the day of judgment we realize with sort of crushing tragic urgency and uh, intensity how their blood is upon our heads. Those people could have been in the kingdom if we had witnessed to them. And so we will live for eternity um, with that awareness that this wonderful future was missed by people because we didn't witness to them. Maybe that's what it means, but I leave uh, you to think about that. And so, getting back to this idea of um, God's ways being somewhat open-ended, he says very soberly to them in uh, 28, 29, 30, he says, uh, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the, ch the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. But then he seems to, be, to say that, look, you guys are going to lose it. Grievous wolves are going to enter in, not sparing the flock of your own selves. Verse 30, men shall arise, speaking perverse things. But therefore, 31, therefore watch. And I, I think he's sort of uh, implying, look, it's all going to go wrong, but it doesn't have to. Because if you watch and are faithful, then it needn't go wrong, although I know that these things are going to happen. And, I mean, reading the Lord's letter to Ephesus in Revelation 2, it would seem that they did actually obey this bit, uh, but they obeyed it at the cost of uh, love. Because Jesus says, remember your first love, your first agape. You know, it's as if they focused on all this stuff that, that he's saying about watch out for the false teachers, for the wolves and all, all this that are going to come. And perverse men arising from amongst yourselves. Yeah, right, they did that. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, etc. But they unfortunately did not do it with agape. And the price they paid was to lose agape love. And we've seen that so often in, uh, I think, our ecclesial, ecclesial life. That the, the idea of protecting the flock leads to agape love being lost. It's what happened in Ephesus. Um, and really, it should be the other way around, that agape love is what motivates us to care for others and to stop them being led away by people speaking perverse things, by grievous wolves, etc., who enter the flock. Thirty-two... 
Now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. Our inheritance is amongst all those that are sanctified. There is an element to which salvation is collective. That is, Jesus died and resurrected uh, and was the only person able to live forever. And he was the seed of Abraham, the, the, the promised son of David, etc. And as Paul says in Galatians 3, we only get access to all those blessings by being baptized into him so that all that is true of him becomes true of us. So we are saved by being in his body. Our salvation is therefore a result of uh, being part of a community. It's not that God and Jesus are talking to us as individuals through the Bible and saying, hey you, Duncan, or whoever, you want to be saved? Well, go down the river, get baptized, and uh, keep reading the Bible, and you'll be good. No, the, the salvation has already been achieved, and it's been achieved in the body of a person, the Lord Jesus, as our representative who died and resurrected. And insofar as we are connected with him in baptism and abide in him, we are saved, and will be, that will be sort of physically, literally revealed when he returns. Now, that means that salvation in that sense is not a totally personal thing. I mean, we will individually, as individuals, be in God's kingdom. But we are saved as a community. And that's why there is such huge emphasis in the New Testament that we must abide within that body. And to, to go out from the body is effectively to go out from Christ. To, to wash our hands of our fellow believers and say, well, they're not good enough or they... Uh, they just irritate me or whatever. I'm out of here. I'm an out-of-church Christian. I'm just going to sit on my own, uh, read, the, read the Bible and break bread and all that and rejoice that I'm saved and that Christ died for my sins and it's all going to be good when, when Jesus comes back. Well, actually, that's to miss the point. That's not actually what it's all about at all. It's about you having a part in a community that are saved. We have an inheritance amongst all those other ones who are sanctified. He goes on, um, again alluding to Samuel this time, after he's alluded to Ezekiel, um, 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or, or apparel. You know, 34, that these hands, and obviously he, he showed his hands to them, have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak. And so when he, he writes to the Ephesians, and the reference uh, is Ephesians 4.28, he writes uh, and tells them that people should not be lazy, but should labor with their own hands to support themselves. When he writes that, he's writing that with absolute um, integrity, uh, protesting really his own example. So he says that, I have showed you, verse 35, how you ought to support the weak, etc., and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he's saying, look, I have showed you what it means to remember the words of Jesus when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. What he's saying there is, 
I am an example of someone who thought and thought and thought and thought on the words of Jesus, especially that phrase, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I've shown uh, in uh, my book on Paul, and uh, it's in Beyond Bible Basics as well, that from what I can see, with limited spiritual vision and perception, on average, once every three verses, Paul is alluding to somewhere in the Gospels, to the words of the Lord Jesus. And some of those allusions are conscious, some of those allusions are unconscious. My conclusion is then that Paul was so full of the words of Jesus. I mean, this is how he could say that for him to live is Christ. That Jesus was in him, in this sense. That continually he was reflecting upon the words of Jesus. And it comes out in his writing, even under inspiration, but there's still that human element within inspiration that came out in Paul, this love of Jesus as a person and his words. And so he says to them, I have showed you what it means to remember the words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. He's saying, I have thought and thought about that. And that's what led me to labor with my own hands, not only to support myself, but to support the others who were with me. In other words, they didn't work. But Paul did. I mean, how bizarre is that? Someone of the, the spiritual statue of the Apostle Paul uh, with a few youngsters, presumably like Timothy and others, that were with him, uh, su- well, supporting him, but who were sort of doing the, the Lord's work with him. And he says, oh, look, guys, I'll work and support you. If we're crying out loud, it should have been the other way around. But he's, he did that kind of thing because he kept on thinking about the words of Jesus that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said, when he had thus spoken, 36, when he had said that, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. It's as if it's saying his very last words to them before he knelt down and said a prayer his very last words to them were, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, he he said, look, the last word in all this will not be mine it will be the word of Jesus. So, although, oddly enough, that phrase is not directly recorded in the Gospels um, it, it clearly is from from Jesus, what Paul says here. And that really then should be our motive. That should be our driving force, as it clearly was with him, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Not just in material things. I mean, apply that, for example, to forgiveness. It's more blessed to give of forgiveness than to receive it. Patience, kindness, sensitivity, All these things that we tend to uh, think we have a right to demand from others. It is more blessed to give those things than to receive. And really that was the spirit uh, of the cross. That's really what the essence of the Lord Jesus was. Um, He said that and he lived that. Because the cross was give, give, give. uh, Without any thought about receiving it was uh, i think we could say serving for nothing and that really ideally should be the way that we live our lives not that i'm doing this so that i might receive a blessing but i am giving for the sake of giving after the pattern of none other than 
the Lord God Almighty himself, who according to Paul again writing to the Ephesians, uh, says that God just decided to lavish his grace upon us, age after age after age. And when you think about that, this become, should become the absolute principle of our lives. Grace, yes, but what does grace mean practically? I think in the end it means that we rejoice. We rejoice. We enjoy and revel in the blessedness of giving rather than receiving.